Welcome, everyone. This is Nancy McLean, and I'm joined by Kate Acton. And this is the third episode for Conversations in Equine Science. Today, we're talking about the relationship between body condition and metabolic parameters in sport horses, pony hunters, and polo ponies. This was a paper written by Pagan, uh, Martin, and Crawley, and it was published in 2009. Um, before we begin, though, we do have a couple emails that I wanted to read. Uh, we're so thrilled that we're getting a following here, and uh, was really appreciative of the personality um, explanation in equestrian sports, and that was our first episode. And uh, she did send us an email, and I told her I would read it. Uh, she's got very interesting discussion. I can definitely see an evolution of my equestrian interest as I matured and have gotten older. I first learned to write English and did some hunter-style jumping during my middle and high school years. Then later as an adult, I just wanted to relax on the weekends after a stressful work week, so I was pleasure riding and trail riding in a Western saddle. As I continued to ride, I was introduced to natural horsemanship and dressage as a way to better connect with my horse. Now, as an older rider with parts that don't work quite as well, I am looking into Western dressage and driving. But even as my interests have evolved, I think I was always more interested in the relationship with the horse rather than being very competitive. Thanks for your show. I love it, Tammy Fuller. And I will add, um, I looked up Tammy on Facebook and she does have a wow factor customized jewelry and it has a lot of equestrian um, earrings and necklaces and it's on Etsy. So if you want to take a look, she's really a horse enthusiast and Tammy, we appreciate your input. And then the second email we uh, received is from Debbie in Chicago, Illinois. And she said, thank you so much for addressing the bit problems that can occur. My thoroughbred also had tie back surgery, and I cannot find a suitable bit that he is comfortable with. The coughing is driving me crazy. I snapped some reins onto his halter, and he didn't even worry, cough, or fret when I got on. Perfect for small arena work until my bitless bridle arrives. By the way, what is a lash? And I had to replay the show. And I think, Kate, you referred, is would that be in the a- The flash. Is it like the flash <laughs> noseband? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I remember um, I was trying so hard for that word during the show and it just wouldn't come to me. Okay. And then afterwards I was like, oh, I meant flash. Yeah, so sorry okay. about that. Well, and Debbie, thank you for your email. And I did send back to her that uh, it was most probably a flash noseband. I just thought maybe in Ireland, you guys called them a lash. So anyway, um, thank you. We so can pretend that we do. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, and then um, we will go ahead and get started with this week's topic. And Kate's going to go on and explain a little about equine metabolism um, in a simple form so that you'll be able to understand the rest of the show. Um, so I thought we would start by just kind of breaking it down a little bit because when we talk about diabetes and insulin, it's something that a lot of people are aware of because diabetes is obviously an issue in humans. So we have that awareness of insulin, but a lot of people don't actually know what it does in our body or how it works or how it even gets there. So I wanted to just do a very basic breakdown of what happens in people and in horses. So the first step is that we're actually consuming the food. So the horse is consuming the forage or the concentrates that we're giving it. As they consume it, the carbohydrates that they're eating is broken down into glucose. And you can go into much more detail with this because part of that happens with our saliva in our mouth and then part of that happens in the gut. This is a super interesting process in horses. So I think at some point we will end up doing um, some literature on digestion itself, but just in brief gets broken down to glucose. Glucose then moves from the digestive tract into the bloodstream. And this is what we're going to use for our energy and to be able to function and be able to do our everyday activities. So once that's absorbed into the bloodstream, our pancreas realizes we're eating food and starts releasing a hormone called insulin. Now, insulin's job is to get the glucose and allow it to enter our cells. So we can't use that glucose as energy when it's in the blood. It needs to actually go into our muscles, go into our liver, um, or get stored as fat for us to be able to use it. And insulin does that really effectively. So the muscles and the liver will then take the insulin and they'll use what glucose we need for that energy. But anything that's additional, it'll store it as glycogen. And I know now I've mentioned at this point various different words that some people might not be familiar with. But if you picture a room and you picture a storage box in that room, that's your glycogen. And if you've used enough insulin um, or enough glucose for your energy, you're then going to store the rest in the box. So it stores in your glycogen, in your muscles and your liver. If we need that again, we just open that box. So it's, it's not that simple in the process of the body, but it, it can be said in that simple form. So if we need it at a later date, we just open the box. And this is why you see like athletes do like, um, carbo loading before big races so they'll eat loads of carbs because their body will store it as glycogen as long as their body is functioning properly and they'll be able to kind of release that slowly while they're doing that um, exercise or that competition so the problem is if we have too much glucose so if we're taking in an excess amount of um, food material and that can be protein or carbs, but carbs tends to release more glucose, then our body is going to use the insulin to store some of it as glycogen. It's going to use then the insulin to store some of it as fat. So that's how essentially fat starts to build up because we're eating an excessive amount that's being broken down into our energy source that's not being used. The problem is when we store this as fat, we still have a large amount of 
glucose circulating in the blood because we may be continuously eating a high quantity of calories or the horse may be overfed with um, its carbohydrates. And when we've got this high amount of glucose in the blood, this is where we start to get insulin resistance in the body. Now, I think this can be more breed specific. They say like it's down to certain um, gender and predispositions in people. But insulin resistance is where the cells in your body, so your muscle, fat and liver cells, stop responding well to the insulin. So then they're not using that glucose from your blood and the level of glucose just keeps rising. In people, this becomes diabetes. Now, diabetes is actually quite rare in horses. So in horses, we tend to see metabolic disorders. Um, and it's because over time, that blood sugar level just keeps increasing and it's not being used. And you'll see this as well with... So I think what we're going to discuss as part of this is the fact that this metabolic disorder syndromes the horses get will just make them more susceptible to things like laminitis um, and then subsequent flounder, which are devastating conditions. And the most common cause is because of this excess insulin in the blood. And there are two types of diseases that can be connected to it. And both you can look into in more detail, but I'm just going to briefly talk about each of them. So Cushing's is one. And this is a hormone stimulated um, issue where basically there's a growth on the pituitary gland, which is in the brain. And this produces hormones that causes a decrease in insulin sensitivity. We won't go into that in too much um, information. But the other one is our equine metabolic syndrome. And this one is actually what we see quite a lot in horses. So this is horses that are resistant to the effects of insulin and they start to gain weight really easily. And these would be um, what we would call our easy keepers. So, you know, you could put them out in a field that doesn't even seem to have that much grass and suddenly they're getting really fat off it. Um, and I think that's where this will kind of maybe make most sense to people. So that's where we'll notice it the most. I know that was basically like a lot of words at once, <laughs> but I hope that maybe made a little bit more sense before we look at um, some of this research. Oh, I think that was great. Um, this study deals with 181 horses and ponies that were in training in Wellington, Florida during the winter show season, which is in February in America. So they were evaluated and sampled. Now, the reason I brought out the time of year is in Florida, the um, temperature is normally anywhere from 40 degrees Fahrenheit to maybe 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And in Celsius, that we like four degrees up to 21 degrees. So it's been known that horses calories unless that temperature dips below 40. So trying to keep themselves warm is normally that kicks in at 40 degrees Fahrenheit or four degrees Celsius. So um, it, this study then, what it was not affected by temperature or horses trying to keep themselves warm. So what they did is out of the 181 horses and ponies, there were 39 dressage horses, 38 show hunters, 
26 show jumpers, 23 pony hunters, and 55 medium to high goal polo ponies. So these were ponies that were pretty good um, at polo. So they weren't like beginning polo horses. So they took body weight, wither height, body condition score, and neck crest adiposity, are, it's known as a cresty neck score, those were measured. And then blood samples were taken before each horse's morning meal and analyzed for plasma glucose, insulin, and triglycerides. So it was interesting to see that dressage horses, show hunters, and show jumpers carried significantly more body condition than polo ponies. Uh, and that was higher than a body condition score of six. Now that's on the scale of one to nine. So they were a little bit on the heavier side, but they weren't considered obese. Okay. So um, the thing is poner, pony hunters were significantly fatter than dressage horses, show hunters, show jumpers, and polo ponies. Yet they had significantly higher resting insulin, but significantly lower resting plasma glucose values. Now, all these horses were sport horses, so they were in regular exercise. Um, Virginia Tech had done a study uh, before this one that analyzed the same assortment of horses, but they weren't in work. They were sedentary. So out of all of them, half of those ponies had cresty necks that were greater than three. And we're going to talk about how to assess a cresty neck score. But they were hyperinsulin, they had hyperinsulin values. Now, Insulin, it doesn't take much insulin. It's measured in milliunits per liter. So a thousandth of a unit is how they measure it. And usually in ponies, it's a reading greater of, in, of 30. So equal to or greater. So um, it was just crazy that out of the Wellington study, only two of the 24 individuals that were considered obese. They had um, body condition scores greater than seven. They had insulin levels greater than 30 uh, milliunits per liter. However, they did not get laminitis as long as they were in regular work. So according to this study, the conclusion was that it appears that overweight sport horses and ponies are less likely to have high insulin levels compared to sedentary horses and ponies. And exercise tends to prevent or keep laminitis at bay. So I thought that was so interesting because especially in America, our horses tend to get fat and they don't get enough use. And those are normally the ones that are coming in with pasture-associated laminitis. So it, even though people who own them might not have the 
physical ability to ride them, that there's even been studies on overweight mares that had not been in training for two years. Um, they did round pen work on them for just 30 minutes a day for seven days and their insulin levels dropped. So it appears that exercise increases insulin sensitivity. So the horse isn't so insulin resistant. So um, I wish we had people that could raise their hand and ask questions, Kate, because I feel like that was a little technical. But I think the the main part of the message is a little bit of exercise, just like in human diabetes, and maybe uh, interjecting a little more fiber into their diet, such as uh, hay that has more lignin, can help keep that insulin level lower. What do you think? Yeah, I think this this research was fascinating, but it is a tough read if you kind of don't know the jargon and the ins and outs of how it works. Um, but I would agree, like if you, the type of um, insulin resistance that horses get is comparable to type 2 diabetes. So if you know anything about diabetes in humans, you know that type 2 we can control with diet. Um, we can control both, but type 1 tends to be hereditary and you need to take insulin injections. Whereas our type 2, sometimes we create that in ourselves by what we're eating. So we can actually control this in our animals. And Nancy will, in a minute, I believe, explain how we can take measurements. But I think what was really interesting in this is that you know, they did say if the horses are active and still that little bit heavier, they're still healthier, ultimately, when it comes to these metabolic disorders, which is important for us as horse owners to know that we need to keep them at either a lean body weight or we need to make sure they're fit. And the other thing then that I just thought to myself, and this is completely hypothesizing because I haven't checked if there's research behind it. But I wondered if because these horses are um, show jumpers and they're dressage horses, they're worked to a level where they'll have developed more muscle, that maybe they have better uptake for the insulin because they physically have more muscle cells for that storage of the glycogen. But that would be interesting to look into too. Yeah, there's definitely so much research on equine metabolic syndrome but it seems to be where it almost has to be like a perfect storm developing within the body of that horse. And um, it's hard to pinpoint causes because you have a genetic propensity and then you have the phenotypical propensity for it, which is let them out in a field for, you know, with unlimited grasp, but yet don't work them or keep an eye on that body condition. And I think um, I have a thoroughbred who's 23 now, and she has, uh, you know, never a weight problem. However, if I don't keep her in regular exercise, she'll develop these little adiposity regions on her shoulder, maybe along her tail. And I know that's because she's aging 
and she can't quite um, take on all the sugars that the grass would give her. So um, she comes in at night and she's off the field. But as long as I keep her in work, she does wonderful. But um, if I just let her out there to eat, I think she would probably be a rare thoroughbred that would founder. So um, you have to read your horse and and kind of get a feel. How do they look? Do they look like they have inflammatory condition? Or they take on a little bit too much fat in certain places. And one of those places is the neck area. And so when we're, we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, I'll go into how you can assess your horse's neck and whether or not they're considered to have um, a crusty neck or not. And we'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. And we're going to go into now, how do you know if your horse has a crusty neck? So um, there was a research paper done by um, Gior, and he came up with this crusty neck scoring. And it where you don't see any um, crusty or fat building the mane. So that would be zero and it goes all the way up to five. And you've seen the fat little ponies that have these crests that just almost fall over. That would be a five. But if you want to get a little bit more specific, you can actually measure with a regular measuring tape. And um, if your horse has a neck to height ratio that's over 0.63, or 0.68 for a pony, you know, may, maybe you better start integrating a little less calories and more exercise. So, and I would like to interject that you can, you know, always have a nutritionist or a Feed XL is a good program to figure out your calories and if you're feeding your horses all the requirements that they need. And I believe that's Feed XL. Dot com. Um, I'll put a link to it on the show notes. But if you would take the height of your pony and inches or centimeters, whatever you use, and then find the midpoint of the neck where the crest or the neck is between the withers and the pole and measure that circumference. And then you take the that number, the circumference, divided by their height in whatever you're using, inches or centimeters, that is um, your ratio. And so those numbers are, if it's a horse greater than 0.63, means you better maybe start working on reducing it, 0.68 for a pony, because they're allowed a little more leeway on that um, crusty neck score or circumference. I think that's such a good point as well that refer to a nutritionist, you know, do your research, get a, re a nutritionist that's qualified or go and speak to your equine vet. We have so much information in this day and age that's at our disposal. And we've mentioned in previous episodes, you know, a lot of what we do is just habitual. So you maybe have kept thoroughbreds your whole life and you've always fed them the same thing. And that's the habit that works for you. But like Nancy's explained, she's got a thoroughbred that kind of breaks the mold. 
So you wouldn't expect them to be as likely to get this, but now you have to make changes and you have to, that's where it kind of comes into play where you have to really be clued into keeping an eye on the horses as an individual and say, you know, this has worked for all of them, but it's just not working for this one. And you can also keep an eye on their feet because if you start to see rings on that outer wall or you start to see changes in their hoof structure, maybe you better back off the sugars, increase the movement. And, um, you know, whatever you do, I never recommend putting a horse and keeping them in a stall. Um, You know, let them have time out with their herd. And like my old thoroughbred, she gets 10 hours out a day. And then they all come in and they get hay in their stalls. But she certainly doesn't get the sweet feed that she's used to from being on the racetrack. So, and it, none of them really do, um, you know, because they don't need that form of sugar. So, but each person kind of has to assess their horse and that horse's needs because it's so different between what my thoroughbreds need and what my little Welsh pony needs. And so um, for their health, and it seems like overall, The limiting factor is diet and exercise. And if you can keep that within certain controls and limits, then you'll be able to increase their insulin sensitivity and decrease that um, propensity for them to become insulin resistant. And I think as well, while we know that laminitis and this hyper insulinoma is something that we're going to see you know more rapidly essentially so if we have um our horses that are on these high carbohydrate diets and they are starting to put on weight they're going to develop one of these at some point but it can be harder to see the bigger picture and look at it from um, a longevity point of view because even if your horse doesn't develop one of these metabolic disorders And it doesn't get laminitis. It doesn't have any issues, but it is consistently overweight and has that higher body condition score. Then their lifespan will be shortened. And there are loads of studies for people, for horses. There's one that I always tell my students about in dogs where there was um, they took a big sample of Labrador retrievers because Labradors are just known to love their food. And I always think ponies are like the Labradors of the horse world. (laughs) Um, And in that study, they basically kept these labs at a lean body condition score and found that they lived longer than the average Labrador lifespan that we had always believed. So we never thought, you know, that we'd have the odd Labrador that would live longer than maybe 12, 13 years. But these dogs were living into 17. I believe the oldest was maybe 18 years old. And it wasn't just that they were living longer, but they had a better health span. So what that means is it's not just length of life, but it's what they can do with it. They were active right up to their later years. And you see that in horses when you've got your older um, horses that have been that bit heavier their whole life. They are more prone to being laminitic, but they also get osteoarthritis. They're more painful. You know, it's not as good a quality of life as they get older. So I just think it is. It's such a great study to show that 
a little bit of exercise and just keep an eye on those calories and we're all doing good. I think that's for true for people and horses. And um, I will add that that Virginia Tech study of all the ponies and horses that were sedentary, they had no controlled exercise whatsoever. Um, half of them that had body condition score equal to or greater than seven, they all developed laminitis and became um, high insulin level horses. So that tells you they were very insulin resistant and uh, maybe integrating a little exercise into their program. And it can be as little as three days a week for 30 minutes, according to the Powell um, study that had the obese mares. If you do that, they even saw that come down as far as insulin levels to within um, managing criteria for avoiding laminitis. But um, anyway, we all just have to do the best we can do. And you can't get enough knowledge. Kate and I are constantly reading this stuff and learning. It's like you never know it all. Now, every week it's something new. <laughs> yeah, it is. Even in the Edinburgh program, it was always, I was learning something to the point where I felt like I've been doing racing for 20 years and I feel like I don't know much, you know? So I think that's a good thing when it's dealing with horses. I think that means you're willing to be open-minded and to keep learning and to not be stuck in a mold. Definitely. And it's a humbling experience because we really don't know everything. And even, you know, the people that carry out the research, the reason why we're starting to know more is because people keep challenging what we know and keep pushing it. So we can't just be, you know, sedentary in our knowledge. We need to keep pushing what we can find out of what we can develop to make lives better for our horses. I think that's true. And I think that's a good note to end this show on. And I do want to add that next week we have our first guest. It will be Brittany Davis. Um, she's the owner of Davis equine services out of Alberta, Canada. So we're anxious to see what her equine journey has been, um, what she looks for um, for the future as well. And so make sure you join in next week when we have Brittany on the show. We're looking forward to it and we hope you are too. And if you have any questions, if you give a little Google to Brittany's um, business, and if you have any questions you want us to ask her, then just fire us an email. That sounds wonderful. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Kate, for joining in. Thanks, Nancy. Take care. Bye-bye.